Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. This episode is sponsored by Mason and Morse Ranch Company. Mason and Morse Real Estate Brokerage and Auction Services represents buying and selling farms, ranches, or recreational land across the United States. Hunting and fishing lands, equestrian estates, farmland, and cattle ranches are their passion, and they want to share experience and knowledge to help you make the right investment decisions. If you are considering buying a farm or ranch, or need professional marketing when you're ready to sell, experience is what counts. Their real estate agents offer clients more than 133 years of professional experience combined in buying, selling, and managing farms, ranches, and recreational properties. Their core values for cowboy ethics and authentic client relationships continue to be the foundation of Mason and Morse Ranch Company's professional land and ranch broker's services. Experienced, trusted, and committed, their team of agents will deliver exceptional service and their marketing will showcase the stories and values behind America's greatest treasure, your farm, ranch, or recreational land. To learn more about Mason and Morse Ranch Company, visit ranchland.com. In today's world, monopolies reach into every fabric of our lives. In agriculture, we are all too familiar. But today, let's talk about the monopolies in almost every other industry too. What has happened to the strict antitrust laws and anti-monopoly behavior our country was founded upon? Where do we go from here? Join us as we discuss just that and more with Matt Stoller. Okay. Well, Matt, welcome to the RCAF USA Roundup. We are excited to have you on today. So let's just kind of start with a general introduction. Tell us about yourself, where you're from, and what you do. Yeah, my name is Matt Stoller. I am the director of research for the American Economic Liberties Project. I um, I research and write about monopoly power. I also have a newsletter called Big, where I write about monopoly power. Very cool. And so are you out of D.C.? I am. I'm in D.C. Okay, very cool. Where, where all the good decisions are made. <laughs> Um, so You're like welcome, you, everyone. <laughs> um, so like you said, you're the director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. So talk to us about what that is and what y'all do to those who aren't familiar. Right. So yeah, we're a nonprofit and it's about 20 of us. We focus on an area of law called antitrust law, which um which is focused on corporate consolidation and intended to address problems like um, mergers when companies corner a market by buying up their rivals or contracting arrangements that uh, reduce the power of small producers. Um, And not just, there are different agencies that enforce that, that kind of law. And then we focus more broadly on monopoly measures in general to make markets more fair and open and competitive. I'm sure that cattle ranchers know nothing about being on the other side of coercive contracting practices or mergers or anything like that. I'm, I'm sure that's completely new, completely foreign. Um, we, we generally, where I'm being sarcastic, um, <laughs> is, you know, when you have to explain a joke, that means it's funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, uh, and, we we focus on a lot of areas in the economy, not just 
uh, so we we focus on on big tech like Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple. We also look at areas like pharmaceuticals and um, and and middlemen in that realm. We look at institutions like Ticketmaster, Live Nation, and different parts of the of of the government. And then we, you know, I've written a little bit about how economists uh, talk discuss cattle markets. Which presumably is is more relevant to um, to what you guys do, but there are broad. I've actually written there are monopolies throughout our economy in really weird places. So I've also written up there's a there's a monopoly in the in the cheerleading world. Um, there are monopolies in mail sorting software. There are monopolies like all over the place, and they often are characterized in in sort of the same way across industries, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, there's usually uh, an opaqueness of prices. There are usually um, exclusive deal contracting arrangements or forms of rebates. There's often cornering of the market through mergers. All of like like it, it. Every industry is unique and has its own characteristics, its own art to it. But some of the tactics that you can use to corner a market are actually the same across the economy. And they're they're the same across history. A lot of this stuff, you know, we've been through consolidation problems before in every industry, including meatpacking um, and oil and whatnot. And we're going through a lot of the same problems today, which I can get into if you're interested. Okay, I'm sure we will expand on those here in a bit. So kind of let's back up. What is your background in antitrust and monopolies and kind of what got you interested in these topics and enforcing antitrust, I guess? Yeah, well, no, it's it's a long story, but, you know, uh, I kind of never felt comfortable in, in, uh, with a sort of any political home. I, I was in. I was just working at a software company after college in um, the early two thousands, and then the Iraq War started, and I thought, uh, and a lot of the people that I respected thought that the war was a good idea, and so I thought that the war was a good idea, and it turns out it was a really bad idea, and that's what kind of got me to say, wait a second, something is wrong with our government, our media, and the way that we think about how to how to govern ourselves, and then um, so it got me into. I got into politics because I got interested in that. And then I eventually wound up working in uh, as a staffer in Congress for a member of Congress who was on the banking committee during the financial crisis. And and we did a really bad job um, during that period of consolidating. You know, of cons there was a crisis that was caused by consolidation of of banking power. And instead of reducing the concentration, we 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 just decided, well, we like the concentration and we'll put a regulatory overlay on top of it. That's what our financial policy framework was. We're seeing it collapsing right now. Um, and that, that I it kind of like, I was, I was thinking, why did my party do that? Like the Democrats have traditionally considered themselves to be the party of the people. Why do we do that? And so it led me to kind of get interested in this dormant tradition of fighting monopolies. And I got I started to learn about chain stores in the 2010, 2011, 2012, and some of the rules that uh, that the Democrats in the 30s had put up against chain stores. These these rules lasted until the 1970s, and there are, there are analogies in I think the meatpacking space, 
and why the Democratic Party in the 70s changed its approach to monopoly. And I so I wrote a book about that. It's called Goliath, the Hundred Year War between Monopoly Power and Democracy. It really helped me understand kind of why both parties shifted to kind of see small businesses as a bad thing instead of what the traditional American model going back to the 1770s, you could go back to the 1600s if you want in England. We had prioritized small businesses, the basis of an independent self-governing citizenry. And we changed that notion in the 1970s and said, actually, small business is kind of inefficient. And what we want to do is put our faith in these like wizards or oracles called economists who are scientists. And they're the people that should get to make decisions about how our commerce works. So I wrote this book and um, because it really combined the con consolidation, this puzzle, which was financial powers gotten much more concentrated and then all other parts of the economy have gotten much more concentrated. And I wanted to understand why that was. So that's what I, that's why I wrote that book. And then after I wrote that book, I, I've been working on trying to resurrect this dormant tradition and getting um, in, in both sides of the aisle and getting more policymakers interested in what we really are facing today in America, which is a monopoly crisis. And uh, and we made a lot of progress. There was some, um, the Trump administration brought the first Department of Justice monopolization claim in 20 years. So they brought a claim against Microsoft in 1998. And then the Trump administration, they didn't bring one for 20 years. And the reason, as one top policymaker said, um, which is, this is a crazy statement, but he actually said this, this was a guy who was an economist at the antitrust division. He said, well, we didn't bring any monopolization claims because there weren't any monopolies in the American economy. This was in like 2012 or something. It's like, oh my, like this, these are the people running things. And that's just crazy. Wow. And like, he was a Democrat, but there are Republicans who agreed, right? I mean, the, yeah, so yeah. That's like insane. And how would you come to think about that? And he believes that. And he still, you know, there are financial reasons for him to believe that, but he actually also believes in good faith. So trying to explain to people, okay, well, actually, there is this tradition of politics where we go after monopolies. Um, and and we should we should own that as the as an American uh, as the American people, and so the the Trump administration brought that suit. They also brought one against Facebook, and then the Biden administration has started to do a lot as well. They brought multiple cases against a whole bunch of different firms, including Google, is another one. They brought there are now five cases against Google, and I think that the USDA has started to do some things around. Um, uh, beef markets. So uh, made in USA, this is a voluntary labeling rule, but you can't, you know, they just came out with, I think it was proposed rules on product of USA, which I'm sure you guys know very, very mm -hmm. well. Um, and, you know, trying to sort of res a, a competition executive order that the White House put out last June saying all, all parts of government have to focus on fostering fair competition, not just the antitrust agencies. Um, so we we've made a lot of progress on that. It's not everywhere yet. Like we have, we have a crisis, and we've just sort of, we maybe we've stopped the ship from moving in the wrong direction, but we're not going in the right direction yet. But that's kind of, we're, I think make we're making a lot of progress, but there's a lot of learning that, you know, we have to do, uh, and that policymakers have to do, and it's everywhere. I mean, it's like the airline system is screwed up, like the rail system is screwed up, like the, 
you know, getting medicine, you know, the distribution, the pricing, that's all of this stuff is just messed up. It's all weird and secretive. We don't know how anything works uh, in, in the government and um, and people who have to, you know, see see and bargain with and deal with monopoly power feel alienated and isolated and like they're getting screwed and they are. And so we have to figure out how to move the legal levers faster. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question that you kind of jogged as you were talking. So are you admitting that maybe most of Washington, D.C. doesn't know about the antitrust laws that America was really founded on and once really known for globally um, in the 1920s and 30s, the Clayton Act, Sherman Act, you know, Packers and Stockyards. We have laws on the books that should have never led us this far to where we are in the economic landscape. Do you believe that D.C. has basically swept that under the rug? Uh, so they did from like the 19 late 1970s, 1980. So not anymore is the answer to what you're saying. Like we're starting okay. to bring it. Um, so, okay. So just to give you like a, like a 30 second snapshot on what happened. Um, so it wasn't that D it wasn't that policymakers and it wasn't just DC. It was like a national, it was a national thing. It wasn't that policymakers were like, oh, let's just that you know, let's pretend that stuff never happened. It's that there were a series of intellectual movements on the left and the right that said that the point of antitrust law is not to protect the, the citizen, it's to protect the consumer. And it's not about addressing concentrations of power, which is how it was traditionally understood, like concentrations of power are dangerous in a democracy. Um, it's about protecting, promoting efficiency, right? And so economists come in and they, they started saying, oh, we don't have to worry about that whole rivalry power thing. That's that's just silly. That's antiquated. That's stuff from the 30s. Who, who know? You know, whatever. That's old. Right. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is with our like fancy charts and math, do things that are efficient. Right. And when a lot of small businesses and medium sized businesses started saying, hey, this is really bad for us uh, and it's not good for our communities and it's not actually good for the economy. It, the economist said, well, you're just you're just inefficient. That's your problem. And you should go out of business. And I think a lot of policymakers in the 80s and 90s believed this for different reasons. And not all of them were kind of bad faith reasons. It was just sort of like, well, you know, that's what globalization means. That's what capitalism means. That's what all of these, you know, maybe any you see this, I think, today um, as well. Like, well, that's too much government. Like, how dare government get involved in our markets, right? As opposed to understanding that markets are politically structured. So a lot of it was like anti-government sentiment, which I think is, is you know, getting rid of rules on airlines, getting rid of rules on on um, trains. Like, I was in a hearing um, like last week and Ted Cruz said, uh, and this is just to pick on him, I'm not making any claims about anyone, this is just what what came into my mind because it's what I saw. And there are Democrats who believe this too. So I'm not just, it's not a partisan thing, but but Senator Ted Cruz said, I am going to focus on keeping big government out of the aviation industry, which if you know anything about the aviation industry is not coherent because the government built the aviation industry. And I mean, it was always private industry too, but it was, you know, from the get-go structure the aviation industry. Like this is a public private 
you know, we did it with our government. We did it with our aerospace companies. We invented the airline. We invented the airplane. Um, and this was, oh, you know, it was it was Air Force procure, or, or Army procurement. And, you know, so to say we're going to keep big government out of the aviation industry doesn't make any sense. A lot of the airports are government owned, right? It just doesn't make sense. And that is the level of kind of that was that was sort of a one level of thinking um, that I think a lot of policymakers really believed because they don't, you know, I think reasonably like don't necessarily trust government. Right. I, I think a lot of but that's that's the the challenge here is like you you have to manage power and to um you know there are private rights of action in antitrust and stuff but to to structure markets fairly you have to actually have some sort of referee that is doing that and so i think the anti-government sentiment from the 80s and 90s empowered the um sort of these private monopolists and so what we saw in i think during the financial crisis in 2008 9 10 is that these institutions that I think a lot of us had come to see as just sort of apolitical, like banks and corporations, technical neutral institutions, economists made arguments about various rule setting, which came under the rubric of deregulation. Until that crash happened, it wasn't clear, I think, to a lot of people that these that markets and corporations and banks, how they operate is a political question. And after that, that happened, and you had kind of a movement that was like, mostly on the left, but not dominant on the left to break up the banks. Um, that started to like come in and, um, you know, I was part of that. And we started to say, wait a second, there are these other institutions across the economy that are too big to fail, right? That was the, the phrase. And this would be Google and um, and pharmacy benefit managers and, and you know, the big four meat packers and so on and so forth. And we started to notice, wait a second, the same problems that we saw in banking of these very complex, opaque middlemen who use market power and create all sorts of fragility, that that is actually the case in across a lot of different markets. And so there's been some good like academic work and reporting and business people have started to talk about it and congressional investigations. And then, um, you know, a, a bunch of conservatives started getting interested in the problem as well. So what has happened now the thing is is to move a, a nation as big as america takes time and we don't have a lot of time is i think the problem and so we've made a lot of progress like we brought you know the trump administration brought that google suit in 2020 they were investigating it in 2019 that suit's going to go to trial i believe later this year so like in the fall so this is this is like what a Four or five years to to from a, to to start investigating a monopoly to the trial, and then there's going to be an appeal. Like that's a long time. And when you don't bring suits for twenty years, which is what happened, then you create the expectation in the business world that consolidation is fine and these coercive practices are fine. So as we bring more cases and as members of Congress start learning more um, about what kind of laws to pass, um, it'll ch it'll change. Um, as the executive branch, you know, the government is big and there's a lot of people who got all their training in the last 30, 40 years. People don't change their habits immediately. They have to learn things. It is changing. It's just not changing fast enough. And I think a lot of people are really frustrated. And so they think that DC has, you know, as you noted, like swept this stuff under the rug. And it's like, it feels that way, but it's, and DC, don't get me wrong. We do sweep a lot under the rug. Like we're not, um, we're not, uh, there's a lot of bad things that happen here, but like this one is more just 
learning and changing bureaucracies and like the the just the slow work of making that happen. Yeah. Jaden, I actually think a question fits here really well. And so I'm just going to go ahead and ask it. You've just talked a lot about the attention that DC and the antitrust movement has had on big tech, right? And that's definitely, you know, even out here in the Midwest, that's what we see on our news. Why is DC not focused on antitrust in the food supply chain? Why don't we hear about that? Well, so so first of all, um, it's not just DC. Every state has an attorney general. True. And every attorney general can bring cases. Um, and there are also private rights of action. And we have not seen, you know, and those are expensive, right? To bring a case can take a lot of, can be difficult. Um, you might, so so the USDA, okay, so under the Obama administration, let's go back like, I don't know, 10 years. So in 2008, Obama was walking around Iowa promising to do something about the Packers and the processors and um, uh, and then I think also Monsanto. And then they did, right? And farmers were like, are you sure you're going to do it? We're going to be retaliated against if you don't do this. And Christine Varney, who was the antitrust division chief, said, here's my cell phone number. Call me if you get, if there are any problems. And then like a year or two later, she's working at AT&T or something like that. Like it's just, it was gross and really... Um, I really, and then towards the very end of the Obama administration in 2016, the, they, they did put forward some rules around um, the tournament grower system in poultry farming, um, which is a way that the, you know, poultry is much more consolidated than beef. Um, and th there were, there are ways that the poultry processors um, control the, the farmers essentially. And so the Obama administration put some rules that were very mild. They were not good uh, enough. They were like, okay, but they wouldn't have done that much. And then the Trump administration repealed them because I believe Sonny Perdue was, you know, saying that this is, this is government regulation. You know, we don't want that. And I think there was not really a lot. I mean, there's sort of like Chuck Grassley was interested in this. There, the, the, the Dakota senators are sort of interested in this, but it's like, there really wasn't the bureaucratic competence to, to move this or to understand it. And the economists were still very aggressive about saying, no, no, everything in agriculture is efficient. That is why it's the way it is. You cannot interfere with this super efficient market. And I think, you know, what has happened is like no, increasingly no one really buys that story. But a lot of the antitrust laws, particularly the Packers and Stockyards Act, from what I understand, and I'm not an expert in this particular area, the courts have really butchered that language have really made it hard to bring cases. And um, there are cases that are kind of like, I believe there are some private cases that have that are happening. And then I might be a guess is that D the DOJ settled some stuff on on uh, poultry price fixing. And I, my guess is there are some investigations going on. It's not as like, um, you may not hear of it as much, so it may not be reported on with big tech, but it's happening. And you know, while we there's been a lot of stuff that's happened on big tech, it's not like Google is under control, right? So like, you may not be hearing about it, but it's not like the people who have to get their stuff through the Apple like app store are like, oh yeah, sure, everything's taken care of. Like the, the problems we're seeing in the big tech space or any other space are still, are they're, they're still there and they're still massive. And in fact, the same economists, the same judges, the same lawyers 
are dealing with those. And so it's kind of a question of, can we get, can we keep moving forward? Can we convince the courts? Can we convince, um, you know, the, the, the Republicans as they debate their, their, uh, you know, 2024 primary, like DeSantis has done some interesting things on there. We know, you know, Trump did some interesting things like what, what is that debate going to look like? And I think really, um, it's important for, uh, for people who understand these problems, who are facing these problems to make their voices heard and say, we, our political leaders need to step up and here's information about how this system really works. And that, I think that has a big impact on policymakers. Like we do live in a democracy and the fact that they just had, you know, I think we, I'm somebody who's relatively new to the monopoly space. I've been doing it for 10 years, but I remember not knowing anything about it before I knew about it. I didn't realize there was this whole tradition. And I mean, I think a lot of ranchers probably did, but, but raising your voice really does matter and it really does make a difference. And so I think this is a moment when if you do that, you will find there is an openness to these ideas. It, it will take a while. Um, and obviously there's an emergency in cattle markets right now. So that just sucks. Um, but uh, we got to do what we got to do, right? Yeah. So let's expand on kind of, as you were talking about some cattle market stuff. And so um, for those of our listeners that don't know you, Matt, you wrote some articles in 2021, um, both of which our cap were featured in, and I'll put those in the show notes. But um, those articles, one specific one I know was published following a hearing in the House Ag Committee. And in it, you discuss beef prices, consolidation, packer profits, return of the retail right. dollar, and you know, on and on, steps forward. Um, so what is your connection to ag? Like what kind of piqued your interest in that antitrust facet? Because I feel like, you know, a lot so much of the focus is on big tech that kind of the ag issues get almost a little bit swept away. Um, kind of like Karina was saying, swept under the rug. So what kind of got your attention, I guess? Well, I mean, it it it's you know, I I I don't have any um kind of personal connection to agriculture. Um, it's just always been, a, you know, farmers and ranchers have always been fundamental parts of the anti-monopoly sentiment in, in America. Um, and, and in lots of different ways, not just antitrust, but, you know, land. Um, you could go back to the Northwest Ordinance in 1790s, which had very specific prescriptions on how much land any individual family should have. I mean, it was a, the idea was to make sure that, um, that we were not a country of giant landowners, of aristocrats, that we were a country of independent people. And you can, you can move that forward to the Homestead Act, Southern Homestead Act. And, you know, land was the original element of this because we weren't an industrialized country. And then as we move forward, you know, the, it was always farmers and ranchers who were at the forefront of thinking about monopolization and antitrust because they were the majority of the country. I mean, this was a, it was a rural farming country. Um, and so, you know, as a, as somebody like I, my book is about a guy named Wright Patman, who was a congressman from 1929 to 1976. He was in um, Texarkana and he represented um, the interests of um people who drilled oil wells, 
and people who grew cotton. And it was it was a rural, you know, it was a rural district. And he really focused on how their constituents would get were getting sort of squeezed by the processors. And, you know, I was really interested in, in what Patman did, but it was like such a fundamental part of rural politics writ large with anti-monopolism. And that I think isn't there anymore. Like you don't see those kinds of conversations in rural areas the way that you used to. And I think that it's not that people don't feel it. If you bring it up with people, they understand it. They just don't necessarily think it's political, right? It's just like the the anti-monopoly sentiment has turned into anti-government sentiment, but it's the same instinct. It's that distrust of, of power of concentrated power and they you know people put their suspicions onto those distant far away masters in dc which is fair but they also need to maybe broaden that lens and put their skepticism on the distant masters that live in you know brazil or bentonville or wherever the you know the the giant supermarket chains or or meat packers where they're located because that's that is a very dangerous collection of power and we have to wrestle with how we're going to uh, deal with that. So for me, I got, I got into farming, uh, not farming itself, but like the interest in agriculture from a historical lens. And then to see what you guys do on, um, on market structure was very, very exciting. And so, I mean, I've used a lot of your work and your data. And then what I saw in the, um, in this hearing was like exactly what, uh, you know, David Scott did the same thing in poultry like 10 years ago. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, and these economists who are screwing the cattle ranchers, they screwed the, you know, the the chicken farmers 10 years ago. And I was like, okay, I know how this works. It's the same people or the same type of people who work for Google, except they happen to work for Tyson's or whoever. And so it's like not a, it's not a difficult thing to translate what what is ha like what's happening in cattle markets uh what's happening in politics in and like give the variant of what's going on in cattle markets. it's the same thing in every kind of in every industry i don't know the details of how to make to produce food and i have tremendous respect for people who do i do know how economists lie on behalf of big money and so that's kind of what i was like okay well i can see what's going on in this here so let let me just kind of explain why david scott that congressman who's you know the in charge of that committee why he couldn't hear the complaints from cattle ranchers is because he he has like economists in his ears and so just like explaining that was that's something i can do let's let's talk let's get a little bit more specific about that issue because in one of your articles you talked about how um stephen coons from colorado state university right um maybe maybe put a different lens on the data than what cattle producers would say the data set read to them talk to us about what you see economists do in the cattle industry space with data yeah so um okay so coons uh let me see here so he looked at um so he was looking at captive supply agreements and was you know that I think a lot of the economists and they don't gen they generally like consolidation, and they look for data to prove that consolidation is good, and so um, 
what what he did is that uh, so there's a, there's a legislation I think it's Grassley legislation that would mandate that a certain percentage of beef is done in cash cattle markets, and so that the reference prices for captive supply agreements would reflect a real market price, as opposed to now when the cash markets are really thin and easily manipulable, you can just manipulate that market and then the reference price is, is, gets all screwed up. So Kuntz, what he did is he looked at a very specific data set from 2003 to 2005 um, and, and then, and said, well, that, you know, Captive supply agreements were totally fair um, in that period, but in 2003 to 2005, there was, you know, we didn't. The markets were were fundamentally different than they are now. They were mostly cash markets. Um, there was a lot of packer capacity, so it was much harder to manipulate prices. Um, and then also, those were the the years when it was, I think, difficult to import uh, cattle from Canada, so prices were higher. And then he's just like, well, based on the data that I've seen, everything looks great. And it's like, yeah, if from 2003 to 2005 stuff was great, like if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a train, right? Like it's not relevant. <laughs> and um, and and so she, he he, but he came out and like published this, and he wrote. Like, let me just read what he said. Um, yeah, so he just actually this is uh, he even said. Um, he actually put a caveat at the end of his essay where he was like, yeah, I'm not really credible. It was like extending these results to the current time period is the most questionable part of this process. Taking results from the early 2000s and interpreting them in light of market conditions in the early 2020s. But he's like, yeah, but it doesn't, that, you know, yeah, there's a caveat. It My study doesn't make any sense. However, it will cost consumers $16 billion based on fake numbers that I've made up. Um, and like, that's crazy, right? That's like, that's, um, I don't even want to say that's astrology because it's, it's, that's rude to astrologists who have more integrity. Um, and, and so I think like that's, you know, and a lot of, you see this with a lot of ag economists, not all of them, but you go to like these schools that have ag economics departments and it's like the Tyson Center for the study of agricultural prices. And it's like, hmm. You know, there's a lot of expert witnesses. And I don't know what Kunz is doing. I'm sure he believes what he's saying, but like you can't, you have to find a way to take in the um, real world impacts of what's going on. And I think the USDA, they're kind of a mess, but, uh, but really the problem in many cases is the courts because the judges listen to economists, right? And um, so that's the struggle that we have and I think David Scott was very confused when he saw this study because he was like, well, I know that there's something wrong with these markets, but I'm being told there's nothing wrong with these markets, right? So you want to know, like, why would an economist say in 2012, which is what I said before, the guy was like, well, we couldn't find any monopolies, right? It's because they use methodologies like this. They're not looking for them, or I should say they're not even not looking for them. They're looking to not find them. Right. And that is, I think, the fundamental like economics. These economists have blinded us to what is going on and they blinded our policymakers. Um, they blinded our courts. They blinded the people. That's an excellent way to put it. Jaden, make a note that could be the title of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> they are looking to not find monopolies. Um, 
you know, you just you just tied it back for a second to the consumer and what what these policy decisions or lack of enforcement are costing the American consumer. Do you think the American consumer, the American citizen has any idea how one note their grocery store really is, how how, you know, they see the different brands of crackers or the different types of crackers, but they really don't know that the same company owns almost every cracker in the aisle. Do you think American citizens realize the issue that antitrust enforcement? Yeah, I think they do. I don't necessarily know that they they know anything about, you know, specific markets. Like when you show that that graph, it's listed. actually everything in the supermarket is owned by five companies. They're all just different brands. Or Every toothpaste is owned by three companies or whatever it is. People... Um, they love that stuff, but it because it explains something they feel, right? Which is which is that there's a there's a sameness uh, to the way to our experience of the world that didn't used to be there. Like I just remember when I was a kid and you'd travel to different places and the country stuff was different. You know, you'd go from you in Florida, you had certain snacks in Nebraska, you'd have different snacks. Now all the snacks are the same, right? You go to a rest stop and it's like the same different, you know, all the same candies and this, and it's like, what happened, right? The, the regional varieties are gone and there might be a bunch of like, I remember looking at candy aisle and it was like, there was like lifesaver gummies. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a good idea. And then I saw that like every kind of hard candy had a gummy version. And I was like, wait a second, some consultant talked, like was sold the same presentation to every food conglomerate. And so they're all doing gummy versions of, and I was like, this is a fucked up way to do things. Cause it's like that in every store in America right now. Um, people know something is wrong. They saw the shortages, right? During the pandemic. Um, they know that prices are manipulated. They don't necessarily know the specifics. They don't necessarily know that there's something they can do about it. But in the polling that we do, and my organization does polling, we do focus groups. Um, everybody hates monopoly and they don't mention cons consumer consumerism. The, the word they associate with monopoly is control, right? It's a political, like it's a political argument. So I think one of the things that I think is like, is a little bit difficult to, that I think the probably the most difficult thing about taking on monopolies is, is believing it's possible. Right. So so when we do polling, like 90 percent of people don't like, you know, think monopolies are a big problem. Ten percent don't know. The main issue, though, is it's not that people don't want something done about them. It's that they don't think that there's any way to beat them. That's really all it is. That's like if people feel hopeless and despondent and they feel like they're the only one who thinks the way that they're thinking. But it's not true. Like. Everybody is mad about the same problem. It's just got different flavors. And they may not know what, you know, they may not know the specifics of the cattle industry or whatever kind of industry you're talking about, but they get it when you when you sort of talk to them about it. And I think that like it's a it's a process of building a society again. Right? That's so important. We don't have a we don't trust each other enough to collectively come together and say, we're going to write different rules about how we run things. Um, and because we don't have that collective trust, um, we aren't we aren't doing that. But part of, like, I think the process of building trust is a process of learning our own history or relearning our history. And I think that 
you know, we we have been made to hate each other and fight each other and distrust each other. And there's lots of different ways to think or talk about that. I mean, I mentioned Ted Cruz. And my, my problem with what he said about airlines isn't that he's wrong. It's that it's not coherent, right? The idea of removing government from aviation doesn't make sense. We need to talk about how we run our aviation systems. And, you know, on the other side, there was like a bunch of ticky tacky, silly stuff too. But it's like, we have to figure out how do we, the people come together through our government, which we control and, and structure our markets because they are our markets and make sure that we treat each other fairly. And that that is a we problem, right? It, we have to have some sort of collective ability to do that, which isn't the same thing as saying, you know, socialism. It's just about saying markets are public institutions, right? We all agree to the rules and then some people win and some people lose, but you all have to agree on the rules. And that is, I think we've confused the idea of common agreement on the rules with sort of like a collectivism. And so instead of instead of just writing fair rules where you know where people can can have open and fair competition, we've just said we're not going to have any rules. We're going to allow Mark Zuckerberg to run everything or we're going to allow like, you know, um JBS to run anything or whatever it is. And then they end up writing the rules and people get really upset, which rightfully so, but it's like we have to rebuild politics to 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 make this happen. So that's the challenge. It's people do get it, right? They really do. Um, they may not get every specific example, but they, I will actually, I'll say this. There are a lot of staff in government that don't like the civil staff in government in general, they have been told since the 1980s, don't upset any powerful interests because Congress will yell at you. And so they've learned not to upset any powerful interests. And that's changing. Congress is now yelling at them for not doing anything useful, but they're they're confused. So it's like it's it's not that there's like a giant conspiracy, or maybe it is, but it's much more boring than most people think. But that's like the main problem is you do have a lot of people who are like, well, wait a second, you've been yelling at me for 20 years to not do anything. And like now you want me to do something? Like, I don't understand. This is really confusing, right? So that's like the, you know, that's what people are. People are just people. They're creatures of habit, right? So how do we beat back the beast? How do we, you know, nurture the idea of mom and pop shops? You know, how do we come back to a center in American society where entrepreneurship is the goal? Small business owners are prioritized. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys are doing it, right? I mean, part of it is, you know, raise your voice and talk to policymakers, encourage your state um, attorneys general to investigate. I think the USDA has, they just put out a fund. I think they're going to say like, so most state attorney generals, they have like two lawyers or something that do antitrust. Not all of some of them are bigger. The bigger states have more Texas, California, um, New York, but I think the uh, USDA is going to put out a grant program for state um, AGs so they can get more staff. But like, call your state AG, right? I mean, if they get five phone calls, that's like a significant amount of feedback. So just call your state AG or call your state legislator and ask for and just say, I care about market power issues. This is my problem. Can you help me? 
And they may, you know, it, it probably won't work at first, but it will work eventually, right? I mean, the thing about the corporate lobbyists is they're there every day, all the time, when people are watching and when they're not, but they're not that strong. They're just there all the time. It's like if people start talking to their, like what politicians care about are their voters, not because they're good people, but because that's who hires and fires them. And they don't want to get fired. And, you know, and they also do care about, you know, the people they represent at some level. So just make your voice heard and um, ask to take on monopolies and then follow them. Like follow the, you know, if you follow the legislation and then you're like, why did you vote for that? Or why did you vote for that? Right. Like that, like a lot of, a lot of times I think this is what, where partisanship gets in the way is I think if you were to ask a normal Republican, is your party taking on monopolies? They'd say, yeah. If you'd ask a normal Democrat, is your party taking on monopolies? They'd say, yeah. But like, if you look at the policies, like they probably are or aren't in lots of different areas. And it's like, well, is your member of Congress actually voting for this particular bill that they should be voting for? Like, that's the better question than are you taking on monopolies? Because everybody will say that. So that's kind of like, and that's good that everybody has to say that now. You know, that's that's a, a mark of progress. But I, I mean, I want to give you a sense of hope because we've made a ton of progress. Like, I know that you guys have said multiple times, well, but big tech seems to get all the press. Does anybody really care about ag? And it's like, these things are not in conflict. They're accretive, right? So it's like, if you go after Google and you say, look at what Google is doing, where they're excluding competitors from the market, they're using coercive contracts. They're doing secretive pricing around advertising. Or you do it at Ticketmaster, right? Live Nation Ticketmaster. Look at all these fees they're tacking on. Look at all this ways they're keeping things secret. Look at all the side deals and coercion. It's like, it is not hard to analogize one to the other, right? And so like JBS probably looks a lot like Ticketmaster, right? It's just that it's a different, it's a different it's, it's different industry and different goods and services, but, you know, they are not that different. And so the, when you like, I always get this a lot because I, I, as surprising as it may be, I, you know, somebody who hates Google will come to me like, why are you always focused on Amazon? And somebody who hates Amazon will be like, why are you always focused on Google? And it's like, you understand it's all monopoly power and the, the law is the law and you can use that law effectively. It's a little bit different in ag because there are, Packers and stockyards, although there's all, you know, DOJ does enforce that, but they're very similar. They analogize really well. So, you know, going after Google helps the fight against JBS and vice versa. Um, and, you know, so I would just encourage people to raise your voice to say, yeah, this is, you know, and the other thing is, by the way, like everybody uses Google, right? I mean, it, Google matters. And also like, going after pharmaceuticals, like PBMs and pharmaceutical firms and stuff like everybody needs medicine. Like everybody eats food. Like all of these systems do actually matter to everyone. So it, it you know, th this is kind of like a collective endeavor. And I think we've made a lot of progress. We have a lot more to go. Um, but uh, I think a lot of it's like, look, there are 330 million people in America. And 10 years ago, I didn't know anything about Monopoly. And now I do. There are a lot of people who don't know anything about it. It's not like they're bad people or they've never heard of it. So like, let's do the educating, right? That is actually fundamentally how you make things happen. And you guys do that. You do a really good job. You've made a lot of progress. And I do think we are going to win here. It's just like, 
let we just need to accelerate it. So let's talk. I've got one last question before Jaden wraps up. So what happens if America rocks back on their heels, takes their foot off the gas on this antitrust enforcement and just kind of says, yeah, we'll just let's see where the chips fall. Will that lead to increased fragility in our economy? And, you know, for us, we're looking at the food supply chain. Sorry. So if the consolidation continues, will fragility get worse is the question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, so there's a, there's an economy, not a there's a law professor named Kate judge who wrote a book called the middleman economy. And she was a, uh, she worked in banking. She was a banking um, uh, banking law specialist. And what she noticed is that the banks, the big banks are middlemen, right? They match savings and investment. And they have all these like opaque ways of doing things. And it was immensely fragile. That's what the too big to fail the crisis was. And she's like, wait a second. A lot of them, a lot of these other entities are also middlemen. Like JBS is a middleman, right? That's what they do. Um, and they have the complexity and opacity in the supply chains are very similar to the banking system. And so same with the fragility. I mean, we have over 200, um, and that's true in every industry, like PBMs and GPO, the wholesalers and the, all the, there's like tremendous consolidation. There have been over 200 generic pharmaceuticals and medical supplies in shortage. And, and the FDA has been keeping a list since 2012. It's just crazy shortages that we've never had before. Very simple stuff. Like for example, medical grade salt water is in shortage, right? And this is like, that's insane. Why can't somebody make salt water and sell it? Um, the reason is because the, the middlemen that control access to hospitals will not let them charge a price that will let them profit. Does that sound familiar? Right. I mean, it's that's why there's a shortage. Like we saw the baby formula shortages. Same thing. Right. The In that case, the government was the power buyer. But it's like. You know, fragility is when you pool production and when you you also pool risk. So that's what's happened. Um, and we have fewer meatpacking plants that are bigger. I mean, you guys know this better than I do, but we used to have a lot more plants that were all much smaller. Now we have a, um, a smaller group of plants that are each can do a lot more capacity, but it's like, if one of those goes offline as happens sometimes that screws everything up, even just in terms of shortages. I mean, without the shortage, like they have immense market power because there's only, you know, one plant within a certain geographic area. But if the plant goes down, I mean, there was like a cyber attack, like right in 2020 or something. And it's like that screws up all the pricing, or I guess maybe it doesn't screw it up. It makes it really good for the remaining oligopolists because they get to charge a lot more, but that's fragility, right? I mean, it, the worst situation is the one we're in with beef, which is they actually like the middlemen make money when there's a shortage. <laughs> that's really bad, right? You don't want to like, you don't want to make arson profitable. Um, but anyway, so that's like, I think what we what we've seen with shortages of everything from like semiconductors to black pipe for construction to you know specialized uh, biopharmaceutical equipment to beef to toilet paper whatever it is we have a much more fragile economy than we used to have because of um, consolidation and because of 
bad contracting practice. I mean, another one, for example, is right to repair, right? Being unable to repair your own equipment. That is a really good way to create shortages, right? If you can't repair your equipment, then you're going to, it's more likely to have shortages of that equipment because you can't repair it. Um, that's actually the reason, I don't know if you know, but like McDonald's ice cream machines are always broken. And it's because McDonald's has prohibitions on repairing those ice cream machines from third parties can't go in and repair them. Um, I didn't know that. They have, that a special, they, have, <laughs> they have a special kickback deal with um, like the the McDonald's franchisee, franchisors have a special deal with the producer of that ice cream equipment when it's apparently kind of shitty equipment and they get a the franchisor gets a kickback mcdonald's makes money when their franchises buy that equipment and they make money because those franchisees have to buy like a service contract so they can't bring a third party to like fix it or even just identify what the problems are that's a shortage right is a shortage of mcdonald's ice cream and it's it's pure it's artificially created through coercive contracting practices and kickbacks a lot of this stuff is fixable. So anyway, the FTC is investigating the McDonald's ice cream shortage. It's, I think, the most popular thing I've ever done. Um, I want that. I want that um, investigation to like con to conclude. But like, anyway, the the point is, this stuff is everywhere, and fragility as like a function of having a smaller and smaller group of people control everything. So to paraphrase, especially, you know, in, in the McDonald's issue and some of the other issues you just said, talked about was basically we sacrificed resiliency to gain a kind of proposed efficiency model. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the efficiency, yeah, we were fooled. We were fooled into thinking that it was more efficient to give up one of our kidneys. You don't need two mm. kidneys. You already have to. You already have a kidney. You don't need another one. Right? <laughs> okay, Jaden. Okay, so the last question we always ask guests on the podcast: What is your favorite cut of beef, and how do you like it prepared? Oh, um, I probably do like a like a New York strip, um, and like what I do, I've been cooking them like low and slow. So, so what I'll do is is like a. 200 degrees in the oven for like an hour, maybe like 70 minutes, and then a quick sear. Okay. Um, I mean, you gotta like salt it the night before. So I, I that's I've just kind of like been enjoying that. Love that. But I had a burger the other day. It was really good. Was like a, <laughs> that's the best. It was so good. I had like a, I haven't had a burger for a while for like a long time. It was so good. I want to make. I mean, I want to buy. I want to eat beef, but I want them the. I want the profit to go to the people that do the work, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's like I bought it. I think I got the burger at like uh, Five Guys, but I'm like, I'm sure that didn't profit like the the rancher, right? That, but it should have, right? And then look, the packer should get some some of it too. But like the that was not. I don't. I don't feel like my dollar went to my food dollar profited. Like went to the industry, or didn't went to the people that do the work and obviously went to the industry. Yep. And that's the thing is I think a lot of consumers do like they want to support American ag and American ranchers. And like, you know, they have this picture in their mind of whenever they are eating beef, no matter what they're supporting ranchers, which in a way they are because, you know, they're driving that demand for it, but not in the way they think, I believe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I hope the made in America, um, the product of USA rulemaking is helpful. Um, I don't know if it will be. I, that's not something I, I mean, I 
wanted it to happen. Um, it's obviously not country of origin, lab mandatory country of origin, of origin labeling. Mm -hmm. So we support that too, but this is something. So yeah. it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. At least you're not allowed to lie about whether the beef is American, which is something. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Matt, for joining us today and for bringing these issues to the attention of Americans. As Matt said, we need to raise up and make our voices known. So let's work together and let's work to get back to competitive markets across the board, across all industries, for the better of our country. We can't say this enough. Make sure you call that Capital Switchboard number 202-224-3121 and speak with your senators and representative today and make sure you tell them you want to see more antitrust enforcement and more strong antitrust enforcement. With that, stay engaged in the conversation and give us a follow at USA on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. RCAP USA is set apart from all other national cattle associations because we rely solely on membership dues and donations to carry out our mission, which is to ensure the continued profitability and independence of United States cattle producers. We exist solely because of support from our members, and we ask you to help support RCAP USA. First year new membership dues are $50, and after that, all renewals are $100 each year. To become a member or donate, Call 406-252-2516 or go to r-calfusa.com.